So it's January 10th, and now's the time of year when everyone kind of looks over their life and puts it under the microscope, and whether you are a resolution person or a one-word person or uh, just looking at your life and trying to figure out how do I look at the next year and make sure it becomes better than the following year, wherever you're at in that spectrum, uh, it's just something that happens this time of year. And for Christians, there's this, uh, well, we... Let me back up. There's this quest in all human beings to want to progress and get better. And Christians, the battle to do that is even deeper and more on a spiritual level because the Bible tells us that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, when you surrender to him and you become a Christian, when you invite him in and say, I give you control over my life, at that moment, the Holy Spirit enters your soul. You carry the Holy Spirit. And at that point, there is this battle that takes place, a battle that takes place between the sinful nature that we have and the Holy Spirit inside of us leading us to righteousness. God wants us to yield our hearts to the Holy Spirit, to become more and more like Christ. And we do that by surrendering more and more of ourselves to Him. And as we do that, there's this process where we become more like Christ. And that's the journey of the Christian life. But until Christ come back, comes back or we see Him face to face, there will always be this battle. And this battle was displayed powerfully in a person that we see in the Old Testament and his name is David. David was a shepherd who became a king, and we're going to look at this Old Testament king who went from shepherd to king who had this battle in his life. He, we see it, and the battle is real in us just like it's real in him. In Acts 13, the apostle Paul was given a sermon, and he said that God called David a man after his own heart. David was a man after the heart of God. Yet also, we see David doing some horrible, horrible things, as we're going to see today. David lived in this battle imperfectly devoted. Imperfectly devoted. That's how he lived his life. And today I want to look at two things as we continue in this series called uh, Defining Moments. I want to look at what made David fail and what made David great. What made David fail, and what made David great? As we continue this series, we're going to open to 2 Samuel chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, which I hope you do at Crossview, we want you to be bringing a Bible, whether it's a paper one or on your phone or something you can look at. Um, I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, if you have a paper Bible, you go past Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, you'll go past Judges, Ruth, and then you'll come to 1 Samuel and then get to 2 Samuel, and we'll be at chapter 11. And this is where I want to begin today. And I want to start off by looking at the question, what made David fail? What made David fail? Now, I'm, we're going to look at a story that is probably known as one of David's all-time worst failures. Uh, some of you may have heard of it. Some of you may have not. I'm going to kind of give you a summary scan through to the story and point out some things in the chapter as we go. First of all, we see that David was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, when kings march out to war... David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. 
They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. I love the fact that in this first verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's dripping with sarcasm. So if you're one of those sarcastic people, and I live with three of them all the time, and so I'm used to this, then you're going to love the beginning of this passage. It's dripping with sarcasm, saying that David was not where he was supposed to be. It says, in the spring when kings marched off to war, dot, 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 David remained in Jerusalem. He was at the wrong place at the wrong time. But you know what? That's not the point of this passage. Let's go on to verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. He ends up committing adultery with Bathsheba, and she informs him that she's pregnant. There's this sin that has happened, this sin that takes place, but that is not the point of the passage. As horrible as this sin is, that is not the point of the passage. And then in verses 6 to 14, David takes this sin that he committed and he tries to make a master cover-up. He tries to somehow fix it with his own power so that he will look like this great godly king and no one will know what really happened. And so he takes, he finds this woman's husband, Uriah, and he pulls him off of the battlefield and he says, hey, I'm going to give you some R&R. I'm going to give you some time off. Go home, relax, chill out, enjoy your wife and family, have some food, have a good time, just relax. But Uriah refuses. He says, how can I go home and relax with my family when my fellow soldiers are on a front line fighting? And so Uriah, showing more integrity than David at this point, he doesn't even go to his house. He sleeps outside the gate of the palace because he says, I could not live with myself if I went home and basked in comfort while my fellow soldiers were being sieged on the battlefield. But David's cover-up is not the main point of the passage. Look at verse 14. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter, he said this to his commander, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. Now he's going to take this guy and kill him in battle intentionally to cover up his mistakes. How far did he drift? Now David is responsible for the adultery of Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And he's asking his commander who to go against everything that he's been trained, everything that's in his heart, everything that's in his soul, to protect the, his soldiers the best that he can. And he's asking him, no, go against that. In fact, put this guy out on the front line and let him die. That's what David is commanding. And as horrific as that is, that's not the main point of this passage. In verses 18 to 24, David receives a battle report that Uriah actually does die. His plan was accomplished. What he wanted to have happen happened. And his commander, Joab, is upset and broken by this. And look at verse 25. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. David tries to make light of what just happened. 
David tries to say, it's not that bad. It's not a big deal. Many people die in battle, so don't let this worry you, Joab. Everything's going to be fine. He softens it. He tries to make excuses of it. And as horrible as that is, that's not the main point of the passage. And in verses 26 and 27, we read this. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Now we start to see the point of this passage. In the moment, David has such disregard for God and his holiness that in his trying to make this easy and to try to ease the conscience of his great commander, he says, don't let this matter upset you. Don't let this matter upset you. This isn't a big deal. In fact, the original language of the Hebrew text says this, don't let this be evil in your sight. The fact that I did all these things, the fact that I had you carry out murdering Uriah, don't let this be evil in your sight. And that is where we find the main point of this passage, that David felt he could be the one to determine what was evil and what was good. David says, I'm going to step into the role of God, I'm going to step into the place, and I will make the declaration what is evil and what is good, and if I want it and I want it to happen, then I'm going to say that's not evil, and I will change what is said. I'll change what God declared. In verse 27, God says, what David had done was evil. And that's our main point. Verse 25, David said, this is not evil. Verse 27, God said, this is evil. Who gets to decide what is evil and what is good? Who gets the final word? Does God get to declare what is evil and what is good? Or does David get to declare what is evil and what is good? Does God get to declare what is evil and what is good? Or do we get to declare what is evil and what is good. And you see this battle in David's soul going on throughout this text, but you see a symptom of the fact that he's usurping his authority as king of Judah and making it king of his own life and king of his own destiny and doing whatever he wants to do and saying it's okay. And we see this mapping out during this story taking place, and there's a one word that keeps popping up over and over and over, and it is a symptom showing that David has slipped from being a godly king to a king that's going to do whatever he wants to do. And what I want to do is I'm going to read you four or five verses, and I want you to look for the one word that is in each of these verses. There's one word that's repeated over and over and over in each of the verses I'm going to read you, and it is a symptom showing us what's going on in the heart of David, and it can go on in our hearts as well. So look for this one word. I'm going to read these verses, and you tell me what is the one word that is repeated in all of them. Verse 1, in the spring when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Verse 3, 
So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba? Verse 4, David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Verse 6, David sent orders to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Verse 14, the next morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. What is the word that keeps getting repeated over and over and over? Did you see it? Sent. Sent. You see, David is moving his place where he's saying, I send this and I send that and I do this and I do that and I am the king of Judah and Israel and I will decide what happens because I am the king. And when I am the king and I make my declaration, it happens because you will follow what I say. That's what's going on in the heart of David. We see in this word, this symptom, that David is orchestrating himself to be put in a place where he's no longer under the authority of God, but he is sitting on his own throne, declaring and issuing decree after decree after decree, not for the benefit of God's glory and the people, but for what he wants in the moment and when he wants it. He says, when I say send, you will say, yes, sir. I will call the shots. I will command what happens. I want that woman. Kill that man. I am, that is not evil. I am king. That's what we see in David as he's going through this. He was sitting on the throne of Israel as Israel's king, but we also see now that he was sitting on the throne of his heart. And if you're going to be a person who worships God, who follows God. You cannot sit on the throne of your heart because that's a spot that's reserved only for King Jesus, our master. And David took back that throne and he starts saying all these things and ultimately says, I am the master of my destiny and I will declare what is evil and what is good. Sent, sent, sent. Now look at verse tw- uh, chapter 12. At the end of chapter 11, look at the very first verse in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So the Lord, what? Sent Nathan. David, you want to send, send, send and be the king and you think you're the one guiding? Now God says, I will be the one, David, who sends. And God sent Nathan, this prophet, to go and confront David on his sin and said, what you have done is evil in my sight. God has the final word to say, I am the master sender. I am the king above all kings. You, David, are king of little puny Israel on earth. Let me tell you something. I am king of the universe. I hold the whole entire world together. I am the one that dictates planets to spin around the sun and keeps everything in orbit. I am the one that dictates dictates, David, how your biological processes are active and flowing so that you can breathe in air and stay alive and that your cells get reproduced and produce life. I am the one that controls all things in the whole entire universe. Before any of this was here, I was. I had no beginning. And I am the King of kings, the Lord of lords. I determine what is evil and what is good. David, I will be the one who ultimately sends. God is making a declaration here of who he is. And in a way, he's taking back the throne of David's heart and saying, you need to remember who I am. And you need to remember who you are as we walk this thing out. 
God says, David, I am the king of kings and I am the sender. I decide what is evil and what is good. And you do not get to change what I declare based off of what your passions and your sinful desires are. You don't get to accommodate because you want something. God is going in front of David and said, David, you're acting like I don't exist. And then poses the question by all that he's doing that is posed to us as well. Who do you think you are in the sight of God? That is a question that comes to all of us. When we read something in the Bible that is going against what we want, what do we do in that pivotal moment? Do we say, I see, though I want this, this is something God has told me I can't have, and God, as a follower of yours, with the power of your spirit, I ask that you would help me in this moment. I submit to your word, I deny myself, and I want to obey what you say. Or do we say, you know, I don't think that verse is relevant for today. I'm going to decide what is evil and what is good. I'm going to make it okay. You see, all of us, every single one of us, myself included, live with that temptation day in and day out. And it's that sinful nature inside of us that says, I want to have what I want and when I want it. And nothing's going to tell me I can do anything different. Do we submit and deny ourselves or do we decide that we're going to declare what is evil and what is not? You see, following God is so countercultural, and this text slays us because we want what we want. We want to say what we want to say without any kind of repercussion. We want to do what we want to do without anybody telling us any different. We want to spend what we want to spend, and we want to rule our lives. And that's the battle that all of us face. But if we are followers of Jesus Christ, that means we no longer sit on the throne of our heart, which means we are no longer allowed to call all the shots. If we're going to live rightly, if we're going to live how God wants us to live, will we submit to him? Which leads to another question. Do you trust God that he knows what's best for you and me? Do we trust God that he knows what's best for us, that what he put in this word is the best way that we can live? Do we trust him enough that when this says you have to go left and everything inside of us wants to go right, do we say, God, I trust you that you know what's best for me, so I'm going to, with the power of the Holy Spirit inside of me, follow and obey what you say? Do we trust that what he put in this book is best? Do we trust him enough for that? You may say, well, David made it to heaven, even though he blew it. But you know what? He paid dearly for his mistakes on earth. Dearly. And if he was here today, he would be encouraging us with all he has, not to follow the way he followed, but to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's what David did that failed. He tried to be the king of his life, and he ruled his life instead of God. To be a Christian means we turn ownership over to God. David refused and hung on, and it cost him. But David is known as a great man. 
He was a man after God's own heart, and that was declared after this incident happened. So how does that wash? How did David become great? What made David great? This man did terrible things, and we just saw him, horrible things, yet declared a man after God's own heart. What made him a great man? Turn to Psalm 51. If you're in 2 Samuel, start turning to the right. You'll go past 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. You'll go past Job, and then you'll find yourself in Psalms, and you want to go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. In most Bibles, right under Psalm 51, there's a title for that psalm. Mine says a prayer for restoration. And then there's some little print before it gets to verse 1. It says, for the choir director, it's describing what this psalm's about. It says, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he'd gone to Bathsheba. So Nathan comes to David. He says, what you did was evil. David feels convicted. He feels the Spirit of God coming on his soul, and he realizes what he did was wrong. He did something evil in the sight of God. And then David writes out this psalm. If you are ever in a place where you feel bogged down by the guilt of your sin or convicted by the guilt of what you did, I encourage you to go to Psalm 51 and read this. Let these words that David wrote in the moment of conviction, in the moment of feeling like, in in the moment of realization that what he did was wrong, that he jumped in the spot of God, let these words from his heart go into your heart. I remember I had a Bible when I first became a Christian, and it seemed like no matter when I dropped it and flipped it open, it came open to Psalm 51. It was always like, boom, it's Psalm 51, Psalm 51. And I told my pastor, it seems like every time I open my Bible, it opens to Psalm 51. He said, that's a beautiful thing. Stay there as long as you can because we have to cultivate in our hearts a reflex for repentance given the kind of battle that goes on in our soul. So let's look at what David wrote, the first 12 verses. He says, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. He's saying, I know who you are now. Blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful from when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. You teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy Joy and gladness, and let the bones you have crushed with conviction rejoice. Turn your face away from my sin, blot out my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Verse 10, he's saying, Renew in me a spirit that yields to your spirit and obeys what you say. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore the joy of your salvation to me. Let me understand what you saved me from. Let me understand what it means to be separated from God forever from my sin and seeing that you saved me from that and let the joy of that restore me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit, a spirit that says I will follow you. In this psalm, we see a heart of repentance 
In this psalm, we see a heart of forgiveness. And you want to know what made David great? What made David great is he was willing to overlook the sin of those around him, and we're going to get to that in a second, but unwilling to overlook his own sin. He was willing to overlook the sins of those around him, but unwilling to overlook his own sin. I don't have time to go everywhere, but when you look at the scripture, I don't have time to take you on this journey, I wish I did, but when you go through the pages of scripture in the Old Testament, especially 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, you will see that there's multiple, multiple times where David forgave his enemies, where David was gracious to his enemies. It's absolutely mind-blowing. The horrible things that people do to David And when he has opportunity as a king to take them out or to make their life miserable, he gives them grace and forgiveness. It's unbelievable to see how much David does that. David is so gracious when people sin against him that he did not go after those that wronged him. He models what Colossians 1.3 and Ephesians 4.2 say when it says to bear with one another, to just move past it. When someone sins against you, we don't have to always bring it to resolution every single time and every single moment. Now, discernment is needed here. I'm not saying that if you're in an abusive situation, you should stay there. That's not what God wants. If you're in an abusive situation of any type of abuse, you need to get out of that situation right away. That's what God would want you to do. But I'm saying sometimes the pendulum has switched where every time a person wrongs us, even if it's a minor offense, we feel we have to react, we have to end our we have to go and make sure that's resolved, make sure they know what they did to us, make sure it goes public, make sure everybody sees what has gone on. And David did not operate that way. In fact, when people wronged him, it's unbelievable what he did. Sometimes he just took it and said, God is so great, he'll even use this pain. For my good. There's an amazing story about this if you want to read. It's a very short, short, thin book. It's a novel based off this, so know that it's a novel. It's not a Bible commentary, but it's one of the best books I've read. It was given to me when I was a brand new Christian. It's a really thin book, and it's called The Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. The Tale of Three Kings. If you want to read a book in 2020, you just want to read one, let that be the book you read. And it puts this beautiful picture of what it means to just trust God even when you are offended against and you don't have to defend yourself every time an offense comes. And we see this in David over and over. King Saul was pursuing him to take his life and make his life miserable. And there was two times that David could have easily taken Saul out and his advisors were telling him, take him out and he chose not to do it. And even after he chose not to do it, the first time, Saul made his life so hard and impossible. And then he had another opportunity, and he still chose not to do it. And then when Saul, the king, finally died, David didn't rejoice and say, yes, he's gone. My life will be all better. And he could have done that. But it says that David wept because Saul was made in the image of God and he had dignity And he wept with Saul's son, Jonathan, who was David's friend. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Then David welcomed a defector who was an enemy of his named Abner, who did horrible, horrible things. And David welcomed him in instead of killing him. And even when David's soldiers didn't trust this defector and they took things into their own hands and they killed him, David wept and punished his soldiers. 
David showed kindness to one of his enemies named Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9. In 2 Samuel 16, a man named Shemai was cursing David and telling the people how horrible he is as a king. And David, in one little snap of his fingers, could have had him wiped out. And he didn't. And his soldiers didn't understand why. And he said, let us go take this guy out. And David said, no, God knows what is best. He trusted God. He trusted God. And there's more and more, and I don't have time to go into it, but as Pastor David DeYoung puts it, you have to get this, that more than anyone prior to Jesus in the Bible, David loved his enemies time and time again with an extraordinary and unexplainable love. I'm not talking about the people that he has friends with that did something stupid and hurt his feelings and screwed up. I'm talking about his enemies, the people who sought to intentionally take him out. Not many of us in this room have someone waking up in the morning saying, how can I mess their life up to the point beyond belief? But David had several. And those are the people that he extended this extraordinary and unexplainable love to. He trusted God with his life. Why was David able to extend grace and kindness to these people that did incredibly horrible things to him? Because he trusted God with his life more than himself to make things right. He trusted God that he was big enough to work all this into his goodness. He trusted God instead of himself to chase after all the offenses that happened to him. What made David great? Amazingly, this is another point, his kindness towards his own enemies did not mean he had a soft attitude towards his own sin. Usually if a person is very kind and forgiving towards others, they can be very soft on their own sin. It's part of their personality, not with David. He was gracious with his enemies and painfully, brutally honest about his own sin. We see many times in the Bible where David was confronted. Every time he was confronted, like when Nathan went to him, he owned it. He said, this is my sin. He never excused it. He never blamed it. He never blamed it on some situation. He never blamed his background. He never got defensive. He never used soft language about his sin. It was not a weakness or a growth area or a dysfunction. He said it was sin and it was sin against God and God alone. And he owned it. And he said, this is what it is. And he called it for what it was, as uncomfortable as that is. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, he says, I sinned against the Lord. And he repented. In Psalm 51, we just read in verse 4, you and you alone have I sinned. You see, David knew how to repent. And David knew how to respond in a godly way when he was called on the carpet for his sin. And that is what made him great. And he was also able to extend forgiveness to those that wanted destruction in his life. I want to close by giving you four questions to consider for 2021. Four questions to consider for 2021. And I encourage you to carve out time this week to reflect on these four questions and allow God to search your heart and guide you in how you're supposed to respond to these questions. So four questions to begin 2021 with, and they're in the app as well, or you can copy them down now. Question number one, do I realize that I'm living before God? 
Do I realize I am living before God? See, some of us feel like we just live and we live our own life and God is detached and somehow doesn't see what's going on. God sees every single moment, every intention of your heart. He sees all that is hope going on. Do you even realize that you and I live every moment of our lives before a holy God who sees all things? As Christians, we live ultimately before God alone, not in the sight of any human being. And so many times I see Christians living to appease and give approval from human beings. And you need to realize that you live before God and God alone. He will be your ultimate judge. Do you realize that you live before God? Theologian R.C. Sproul said this, you want to know what the Christian life is. The Christian life is that you live all your life in the presence of God all your life in the presence of God. So do I realize I'm living before God? Number two, do I trust God enough to believe that his way is best? Do I trust God enough that what he put in this word, even the things that restrict what I want to do, do I trust him enough in those things to say, yes, he is God and I am not? Am I on the throne of my life or is God? Number three, When someone wrongs me, how do I respond? When someone wrongs me, how do I respond? Do I trust God even when I'm wrong? And again, like I said, we have to use discernment here. If you're in an abusive situation, you should not stay in that situation. But in the lesser wrongs, do we chase after every single little thing and make sure the whole world knows about it? Or do we trust God? And finally, number four. When I wrong God, how do I respond? When I wrong God, how do I respond? Am I even aware that I wrong God? Is the Holy Spirit moving in my life enough to bring about conviction that will lead me to God's kindness, that will lead me to his forgiveness, that will lead me to his mercy and his grace? These are the four questions. When we look at David's imperfect but devoted life, we learn that we're not to sit on the throne of our hearts because that place is meant for Jesus as followers of Jesus Christ. We also learn that we need to be willing to overlook the sins of those around us and be willing to never, ever, ever excuse or overlook our own sins before a holy God. That's how we live, imperfectly devoted. And my prayer is that we live that way from this point forward. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you put examples in your word that we can so relate to. Because I know my own self and my own heart wanders and so often wants to usurp the throne of my heart. And there's not one of us in this room that has never done that. And we see this play out, this battle in King David. And so God, I ask that you would help us. We can't live the Christian life in our own strength. We need your help. Even these four questions, we can't take the results of what you do from searching our hearts and live them out perfectly. We need your help. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need you, Jesus. So let that be the cry of our heart and hear it today. 
I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we worship.